Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the Church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. We'll use a process of mutual invitation for this. So I think, um, Di, I will ask you this question first. And once you've introduced yourself and spoken to that question, you can ask whoever you like to speak next. Our question for today, set by Jason, who is our curator for today, is have you ever been to a Shabbat service or a religious service not in your own faith tradition? What aspects of the liturgy did you meaningfully connect with the most or wish was a part of your own liturgy? So, Di McCullough, how do you answer this question? Okay, how I answer this question. Um, oh, and, and introduce yourself, of course. And who am I? Okay. Um so I am a lay person in Columbus, seminary trained. Um, I'm also a trained spiritual director and hospital chaplain. Um, for the purposes of this question, it is useful to know that I am a denominational mutt. Um, one of the upsides of being a Marine Corps brat is that I grew up all over the world. And so I worshiped in all sorts of places. Um, and there's a really wide spectrum in there for me. I have... Um, attended a Shabbat when I was in seminary. I took um, a class on Judaism taught by our then local reform rabbi and attended services at his synagogue. Um, the thing that stood out to me actually was how familiar the liturgy felt to Episcopal services. Um, the responsiveness between the worship leader and the congregation felt familiar to me. It's been about 10 years though. So um, anything else that stood out has leaked out of my brain, particularly in these times. Um, so that's where I am. How about you, Jane? So uh, my name is Jane Gertson. I'm an Episcopal priest and um, have been working on thinking about new forms of Christian community for several years now. And as I think about this question about, um, yeah, I mean, I have attended a Shabbat service. I too remember attending one in undergrad, uh, for the first, for the first time. Um, and for like comparative religions class or something like that. And I think I went to, um, yeah. Anyway, I, what I remember is exactly what you remember, which is that it. I remember the chanting and the sort of like liturgical aspects of it. Most recently, um, I attended your uh, synagogue, Miriam, and remember from that two things I think that struck me. One was that uh, one of one or more of the songs were songs that we sing at camp, and I remember just being sort of pleased that there was this sense of the shared music between traditions and just the presence of children and community that felt very familiar and, and different in its own way. Um, I've also attended some other services. I think the thing that I most am connecting to or long, one of the parts of the questions was what do you long for in our own tradition and I think it's a sense that what happens in the kind of ritual gatherings is brought home um, and that faith is practiced in the home in really specific ways. And I think as an Episcopalian, that's something that I 
long for and is certainly a question that I'm asking right now in the midst of COVID and all of us being in our homes and wondering what does faith look like in this context. So those are my sort of ponderings. Um, I will invite Carl. Thank you, Jane. I'm Carl Stevens. I too am an Episcopal priest uh, here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm also a trained spiritual director, and I actually have never attended a Shabbat service. Um, I have gone to some Seder meals, invited by friends over time. Um, but uh, so I think the experience I'll talk about is going to uh, the the Columbus uh, Buddhist Sangha. So in my spiritual direction training, I uh, was required to go worship with a, a different faith from my own. And so I went on, I think, a Wednesday night to um, this Tibetan Buddhist uh, community, which at that time was in a church, which has since been burnt down in an arson attack, unfortunately. Um, but they they had taken over this old church building. And I was the only one, except for the woman who was leading the service, who was very kind, like sat next to me. We did all the prayers. Um, they had these thin kind of landscape uh aligned books that had many, many prayers and chants uh, with Tibetan on one side of the one page and English on the facing page. And it was really the most like uh, an even song service in our tradition. Um, and which has always been one of my very favorite services. So that, I think that's what I um, kind of loved most about it and wish we incorporated more is meditative singing and chanting. Um, so there we are. Uh, Miriam, I will invite you. Hi, I'm Miriam Charlinchamp. I'm a rabbi in Temple Sholem in Cincinnati. And yeah, I've been to lots of other people's religious services. I, I actually find that sometimes it's easier to pray in those environments than it is in my own space because it's sort of... Um, requires you to be open and to think about different things and connect you. And I sort of feel like it just shakes you into what you're supposed to be doing in the first place and without any sort of control or leadership in the moment. And then I feel like um, my best friends in town are all clergy of different faiths. And so sometimes I'll be talking to them earlier in the week about what they're going to speak about. And so then I'll want to check in, especially now. Now I can just sort of watch all, a few of their services on Sundays and get that. Um, but when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about um, the couple of times, I think I've been in mosque for worship, I don't know, I don't know, seven or eight times maybe, and um, I always find it initially uncomfortable to cover my hair and to sit up separate from the men and to only hear men's voices, but I think this powerful, and I, I really am struck by it in this moment, what it must be like because you can't do these things but to sit side by side with other women and um, touch but not touch, like you're not actually touching them, but they're so close and um, to move all together. I just found those movements so similar. I think the Arabic feels like the Hebrew. You know, you can understand a lot of it. So there was both the similarity and the separation at the same time. And I always find those services really, really moving and um, challenging in the best of ways. Jason, I invite you. Uh, yeah, Um First, I have to, um, to so Carl, I love it that when you opened up, it, it sounded like you said, uh, welcome to liturgy and lawning. And so I had this total picture in my head that uh, 
on kind of in your, you know, like lawn chair doing some liturgy. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, you, um, you know, my uh, one of my diacno students has pointed out that I am completely incapable of pronouncing an NG sound. <laughs> and I've been working yeah. so hard to get it right, Jason. But obviously... I did not. Today. No, I just, yeah, I love the image that I just had when you said that. But I, I want to, Miriam, I want to thank you for um, joining us as our guest today. And, um, and you know, and I connect with um, kind of what you're saying. I mean, I've been, I've been to several Shabbat services. I've been to several services from different religious traditions in different countries. And, and I mean, I think I remember a moment when I was in, um, I was in the mosque, I was in Turkey, I was in Istanbul and, and just the, um, I mean, just seeing the devotion and the admiration for, I mean, just that sense of prayer and that sense of um, penitence and humility. And I don't know, there was something about it that was really special when I was there. I think, but but answering this question, I I want to connect with you a little bit, Miriam, because I'm on a whim. I went, I think because like I was um, in a, like in a service, not in a service, in a um, program for clinical pastoral education. And at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And the director of the program, I think she said she went to Temple Shalom. Um, but she, so I was just like, on a whim, I, I decided to go. And um, and you were there, obviously, as the as the rabbi. And, and um, it was funny because there was like a, there was another, I don't think it was like a, a friar or some somebody who was there. Yeah, yeah he comes over, yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I mean, I love that part because the way he, he was just, um, he was so interested and so loved being a part of that community. And for me, that was, I think ultimately that's what I connected with, um, was the idea that how inclusive, um, every synagogue experience I've, I've had has been, how included I was at Hebrew Union College in that little small, like, group of, of, uh, um, HUC students, and, and there was just something really special about that. Just there was just a sense of like complete welcoming and complete um, inclusiveness, and that was very special for me. But I thought it was interesting because you're like there, and you came up to me, and you and you're like, oh man, you came on this certain certain special day, and you were like, I didn't really say the liturgy right, and I was just like. I love that part. I loved it that it was just very real and that there wasn't. I think it was like a kid's service yeah. or something embarrassing like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was something embarrassing. But ultimately, I mean, and then that connects with another time I had where I went to, I was actually going to hear a, uh, a, a person because I'm taking a group to Israel that got canceled because of, because of the coronavirus pandemic. But I was going to hear this, um, settlement this guy who lives in a settlement i was going to go hear his speech on how he works towards peace and reconciliation all that kind of stuff so i was just curious how he approaches it and that was in columbus and so my wife and i went to the shabbat service before and this woman took me in and she was just so excited that we were there and she was so concerned that we were on the right page of the liturgy and was just i don't know it was there was just always this sense of like i was very welcomed and i loved that I really appreciate that. Um, so, so today's topic is really about kind of the, the, the relation between Christian liturgy and Jewish liturgy, and um, and how that you know since you know since kind of the first century how that's developed, and, and even to in the twenty first century, 
how we even notice. I mean, like Di was saying, how she went to a service and felt at home a little bit, just or 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 was aware and familiar with the liturgy. And ever since graduate school, um, when I was exposed to the biblical scholarship of E.P. Sanders and my own professor, Brad Young, who's not as well known, E.P. Sanders is like a superstar in biblical scholarship. Um, but I've, but ever since I've been exposed to these guys, I've been interested or, or better yet, enamored with the early Jewish context of Christianity. Um, so my professor, Brad Young, in particular, um, opened up my world to the teaching of the, the Tanaim, um, these rabbis of this uh, second, like kind of right after the first century, right up to, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred years. And, and how, and, and their teachings that they compiled um, um, after the birth of Jesus, to about 200 years after the birth of Jesus and about 130 years after a really, really significant watershed event of the destruction of the second temple. So currently I'm writing a dissertation. So I'm, I'm in a PhD program and I'm exploring what piety meant for Paul as a diaspora Jew who all happened also to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And I'm interested in Paul because, and I'm interested particularly in Paul and this connection with early Judaism, um, early Christianity and Judaism around the first century, because millions of Christians think that because Paul underwent a conversion experience, that he just wholesale abandoned his native Jewish beliefs and practices, um, including pilgrimage you know, to temple festivals or to, to the temple during major festivals. Um, and when it, when it comes to New Testament scholarship, however, there's, a, there's somewhat of a slow-moving revolution taking place as more and more scholars are starting to not only embrace the Jewishness of Jesus, as, as has been the case in Jesus scholarship over the last 40 years or so, but also really starting to embrace how important Paul's own Judaism was for him right up until his final days in Rome. So, you know, some really superstar scholars like Mark Nanos and Paula Fredrickson, especially Paula Fredrickson, who kind of leads the way in this research, and Pamela Eisenbaum, all of which have books that are written for non-scholarly audiences, and I, and I highly recommend them. But they're just a few of the superstars that are leading the way, but more and more minor scholars like myself are also pushing this form of scholarship through. And what I'm hoping are the corollaries of that is that, the, that this cascades into the church. So I'm a firm believer that New Testament scholarship has played a really significant role in helping modern Christians to understand their ancestors, especially their earliest brothers and sisters. And I'm hoping that this area of scholarship will impact the way people interpret Paul, not just his letters, but his life too. So all of that, so what does this have to do with our topic today, with liturgy and longing? For me, and this is why I wanted to invite Rabbi Miriam on the show today, um, Christian liturgy obviously was profoundly influenced by Judaism. When it comes to how we gather, how we pray, what we pray, particularly the Psalms, how we bless, and even how we arrange our sacred objects. And the first example I can think of is that the wine and bread is not something exclusive to our own liturgy, but is also a part of a Shabbat liturgy. At least my experience has been that, and that's where I, Rabbi Miriam, I want you to help us understand 
what, what I just talked about. So can you help us understand, I think it's called the Kiddush right? or Kiddush or how, however you pronounce it. Um, so help us understand that. And also maybe touch on the fact that how are you able to do that or what, how are you um, involved in that kind of liturgy or tradition or ritual in the, in the uh, current quarantine context? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it's interesting because your question is, it's like the flip of what you were just talking about in that it's really a question rooted in sort of Christian understanding of, of what the Jews would do. So Kiddush for us is the sanctification of the wine. So that way, like the words are the same and the, like the goblet might be the same or the cup is the same and what's in it is the same. But what it gets transformed into is, is really different and its purpose. So Kiddush is just the name for the prayer that you say over the wine and okay. when you pray over wine, it just says, this moment is holy. So it's just, Bere pre like you just say it, and then it means the moment holy. So you don't need any, everyone can say that, and you do it any, so it doesn't change anything. You would just say it before you would drink something. So it doesn't matter where or how or what you do, you're not, uh, you're not transforming anything. You're just naming the moment as like, okay, now we're in a sacred moment. Um, and then it's also not required to be part of any ritual service. We just do it. You're supposed to be doing it actually on Shabbat. So on Sabbath, you're supposed to be just doing it at the place you're eating. But Reformed Jews all go out like for burgers afterwards. And so we do it in the synagogue to say, okay, this is a communal moment. And I actually think that that's us. The Reform movement probably is borrowing from uh, sort of Christian communal prayer activities in that way. Like we still have the wine and the bread, it's at different places, but you're just supposed to be sharing in a meal in this moment. This is what you're supposed to happen. So if you were in a tr- more traditional Jewish context, like an Orthodox context, you would have, there'd be more of a Saturday prayer crowd rather than a Friday night crowd because you're home with your family. And in a reform mm-hmm. context and a, a religiously liberal context, it's a flip. So they're doing it on Friday night and they're doing that kind of motion there. Um, I think the biggest change, then this might really, maybe might be a, a question that we can gauge in a little deeper on that, is the hardest thing for many Jews right now is that in order to pray, you need a minion, which is basically a quorum. So you need 10 people for your prayers to connect in a certain way. And if you're not um, with those 10 people, then you, say, you, don't, you can't say some of the things. So all the mourning practices were for grief require community and it's a counted community. Um, my congregation, we'd already sort of, this is halacha or the law. So we've already engaged in that and decided how we're going to count people. But like a lot of the traditional synagogues who wouldn't even allow electricity or videotaping or computers or maybe microphones are now having to grapple with what does it mean to be counted? What prayers can be said? And how do you foster community in this environment? So that's probably a closer parallel into what all of us are, are sort of grappling with. But maybe that's, that's now rated in my own Jewish thing, sort of reflecting back. So it might, might not work. I don't know. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I think it's, you know, when you say in the bread and wine, it doesn't transform into anything. I think as like an Episcopal priest um, and, and Di and Jane and Carl, please like join in. Like, it's interesting there's all this discussion about the real presence of Christ. And I mean, what do we really believe about kind of transformation and all? And for me, the, the bread and wine really is more about, about bringing a community together and being connected, not only to Christ, but also to the body of Christ 
from one another. So um, I don't know, maybe there's more connection than, I don't know, what do you guys think, Jane, Carl, Di? I think, well, I guess I'll just jump in and say, I think, Miriam, your question is exactly, exactly the thing that I think we're all wrestling with, which is for me less about what transforms and more what, what does the, how do we understand community in the world in which we're in? Like what constitutes community and how do we gather people as people of faith? What does it, what does it mean to be people of faith if we're, if we can't be with one another in that? And, and so I, for me, at least that's the, that's the question that I've been asking as well and felt this deep sense of grief this past week not just even for church, but for like, I preached on this on Sunday, but just for like the teachers that are my children's teachers and the sense that we are in this bigger thing together and how lonely it feels to not be able to celebrate big and little moments in our lives together. Um, and trying to figure out creatively ways to do that. But I mean, I don't know. There's a woman in my congregation who has cancer and is in hospice. And literally I've been having this conversation, like, can I go to her? Can I, um, you know, how, how will we as a community honor her life and witness to all of us? So I don't know. I think that you, you tapped into the questions that feel closest to my heart right now too. You know, I've been, I've been really kind of struggling with why I miss the Eucharist so much because, um, I don't know why it's become so central in my life, why I think it's a place of the greatest mystery, um, particularly because I started by talking about going to that, that Buddha Sangha and, and having that mystery just through chanting and through prayer. Um, so I think, I think Miriam in many ways were kind of stuck in an understanding that is to, to reference an article we'll be talking about a little later is really more based in the temple than it is in the home or in the, in the school, the synagogue, the, the ecclesia. So I, you know, I'm just struggling with what to make of that. Like, why is it that my life has become ritualized in such a way that I can only feel the mystery of divine presence, or I can feel the mystery of divine presence best mm. when I'm doing one particular act. And, and I'm just coming to terms with how limiting that is. Um, and, you know, it was limiting before this ever happened. I just didn't know it was limiting. Right? <laughs> I totally feel that, Carl. Like, I, I was thinking, you know, before you've been in all these you know, different thought groups, I'm sure you're in the same place where they're like, talking to the clergy, this is the time to innovate. This is the time. And I was like, you know what? I was already doing that. And I was doing a pretty good job at that. And I was feeling good about it. And it felt like choice before. And the things that I didn't connect with in my faith, I was able to let go of the liturgy that no longer worked for me. I was rewriting and, you know, and I could complain about the congregant who kept asking me to sing the right tune for whatever song it was. Uh And now I feel like COVID has robbed me of some really basic rituals that I didn't know that I was hyper-connected to, and I feel bereft for that, and then I'm frustrated about that. Like, like the thing I think Jews do really well is lament, and we're just aces at lamentation and grieving and mourning and connecting and, like, tying food and all that stuff into it, and it's just gone. And I think, like, maybe somebody who is 
has a different optimistic spirit than I do. You could say it's not gone. It's just different. But I feel grief over the grief and I feel like it was taken from me rather than choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Yeah, Jane, I know that you and I have been talking about grief and lamenting. And so it's, I'm curious what you can, I mean, what you have, like in response to what Miriam just said. Yeah, I mean, I think what she just said is exactly what I've been feeling. Because I, too, have been someone, Miriam, who I think of myself as being super creative and playing with the tradition. And I don't know. Yeah, like it feels, and I don't know, interestingly, about six months ago, I started serving a local congregation alongside my other work. And something about re-entering into community and you know, moving through the rhythms with them makes me realize that these aren't abstract concepts, like what works in one community and and the need that arises from that community. I think as a spiritual leader, I feel that like in my body, like it's not just my own longings. It's the grief that I feel that other people are carrying, which intellectually I can separate, but like pastorally it's all wound up together. And so like there is some part of it that, yeah, like I want to respond to what their need is, which sometimes is comfort in the tradition. Um, and then realizing that, as you point out, that like I have my own things that are my comfort in the tradition and pieces of it, which I would have rejected before, now feel like, why can't I have that if I, if I long for it? Or I mean, I know why, but just to a sense of the whole that it has created in, in my own spirit and heart. Di, what's your sense of this? I'm curious what you've been thinking. I feel like I'm a little bit of an outlier here. And, um, and I promise it's, I promise I will not be a contrarian on every issue. Um, and I don't know if it's because I'm not clergy. I, I think that might be actually a chicken and an egg sort of position. Um, but what I notice, I I actually notice that I'm not missing some of the things that other people are talking about missing. I notice that I'm working really hard to be compassionate towards that and to look at where it's coming from and hear it um, and be supportive of it. I feel like... Um, I feel like I had to work really hard to find a place for myself in the church and it's an ongoing struggle and, um, and both in the church and in other places, I don't, you know, I mentioned in the beginning that I was a military brat, um, and I'm not close partly because of that, but for other reasons too, I'm not close to my extended family. So there has never been, and there is not a place that I have ever felt entitled to. And I think that so much of this is about a sense of innately knowing that something is my home and I can't get there. And for so many people, that's a new feeling. And for me, that's always been part of how I've engaged with the world. And so I have compassion for it. And at the same time, rather than longing for that place to come back, um, 
I really hope that when the wound scars over, we can still look at it and make space for people who aren't entitled for us to a space. Um, and I, and I hear myself saying that and it feels, you know, sort of selfish. Everyone should feel like I feel that's not what I mean at all. Um, but what I, I, what I'm trying to say is that I see how painful it is for people and I want people to be nurtured in that. And as we move forward, I desperately hope it shapes our concept of hospitality. I'm, I'm wondering how like the, the concept of a minion plays into that. Um, and Miriam, this is kind of a question for you. Like is how is a, how is a minion set? Why is it that number of people? Cause I, you know, home can often not be a place, but a, but a community, the people next to you, as you were kind of saying, Miriam, you know, um, but how do we, how do we decide what is the appropriate number of people next to us or what next to us even means? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm stuck on what Di was saying about invitation to hospitality and it has that connects to it. So for us, there is, it's, there's a reason it's 10 and it all comes from a specific psalm. And I, I mean, I can look it up real quick because I, 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 I forgot exactly what it was, so I can just look it up real quick. But it basically, the psalm, maybe you guys will just know it off what I'm talking about. Um, it says that that you need, that a minion is required to receive God and that God exists and is exemplified or made larger when there's a minion and the word, and then 10 comes up in that. And so there's some decision about that. But then I, I think about um, this broken, many broken chains of tradition that we've sort of lumped together and decided that this all sort of happened naturally, that innovation happened like that. But that at the time, you know, I would think about the article that you sent us in this way too, that it, at one point um, there wasn't a need for an established group of people to count as community because the priests were doing it for us. And once we didn't have an intermediary and we were connecting together, then then we needed to say, well, what does it mean to be together? And this is the number for that. And it also meant that it was men over the age of 13. And then, I mean, we had to continue to change. And so I actually remember um, being a girl in a conservative synagogue, and I didn't know, I mean, I knew there was women rabbis they were, I think the first woman rabbi was uh, ordained just right before I was born. So I knew it existed, um, but I didn't know any. And I remember when we got our first woman rabbi, and then that uh, there was a discussion about whether women could be counted. And even though it was part of um, mm-hmm. the rules, it still felt like a little uncomfortable. And I remember that feeling of discomfort. And now I, I would be shocked if someone suggested that women weren't equal in that space. And I'm also into this point where it's supposed to, it's supposed to be you know, 10 Jewish men over the age of 13. And now we're in the space where we have to do funerals. I don't know if any of you have had to do any of these funerals that's happened in the last few months, but they're, they're pretty awful. And to think that we're limited to 10 and not all those 10 are Jews, but we're all witnesses. And so that becomes community. So it's all based in a Psalm, and yet it's changed so much over time. And so I'm wondering if it's going to be ever expanding about what all this means to be in it together. I'm stuck on both Dai's idea and this idea of the ever-expanding nature of our sort of definitions of community. 
Um, and I wonder if that's what it means to be dispersed is that we come to know the reality of those who we may have forgotten or couldn't see or couldn't understand when we are sort of not able to continue to gather in the same ways that we, we were before. Um, and so there, I don't know, I, I don't know if I have fully thought it through, but there to me is something about, I wonder if we redefine our definitions of community in the moments where we are pushed to the edge of what is possible. Um, so in, you know, in times when there was this conversation about women or men and the, our roles, you know, what were the things that were pushing us to those conversations over time? And now as we begin to define, as you're pointing out, Miriam, like, is the minion limited to Jews? Um, and on some level it should be because that's part of the tradition. But on the other hand, in this moment, there might be others who show up to be witnesses to the funeral or to the wedding or whatever other ga- kinds of gatherings we might have um, that force us to expand our definition of who's included. That, you know... Okay, so this might be a side. This might go. I'm sorry. This might be beside the point. But um, I was just thinking about that this morning because um, uh, kind of a mutual friend of some of ours, Nuria Love Parish, um, published some kind of beginning thoughts on how we would reopen, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a concentric circle process, right? Like if you have a worship team in the church first, is that you know? that's one group to worship. And then you gradually kind of, maybe you meet outside where you have less space for fewer people and they're more spread apart. And then finally, maybe you come back to your main size of worship, but it's, it's this ever, you know, it's kind of the op, it's the inverse of what we were saying, like how small can a community be? And then when a community starts to grow again, um, how does it grow in a way that is safe or meaningful and meaningful at the same time? And how is our community redefined through the process of going smaller and then re-expanding? Like, or, I mean, I think that's the question all of us have been asking, but there's sort of, does this period of being dispersed change the way in which we understand community itself? Yeah, and it's almost, you know, there's something about what is my community right now? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, because... I mean, as a priest who is kind of in between, like I'm not really, I'm in this kind of in between, I'm not really in a, a parish completely. Like I'm, I'm in a residency program. I'm not, um, the priest kind of employed at a parish and I'm kind of going back and forth between a couple of different ones. And right now I, but I host this morning prayer and my community for me right now feels like people who show up every morning and for that morning prayer. And it's funny because we'll start off with a psalm. I'll start off usually with nobody there. I'll read the psalm. And by the time I look up and there's like eight to 10 people, huh. and I just feel, I feel like there's this something of that sense of the, you know, there, the pre, I don't know. I mean, there is a connection with, the, I mean, somebody wrote this article and they were talking about how they had a whole different view of what, what is, what does it mean to be community? I mean, they use the word church, you know, I mean, but in the sense of what does it mean to be the, to be community? And they were saying that they were using Zoom to 
you know, to do their service. And they started to realize what does it really mean to be the body of Christ or to be, or be community when, you know, every few seconds people would pop into, into the Zoom and it was like, ah, yes, this is community. We're all gathered here to worship. And, and without them, it really doesn't feel like, um, it just doesn't feel the same. And so for me, I mean, when I'm doing morning prayer, there's something, there's very, it's, it's essential that these, at least these eight people show up and we do this together. And I know a lot of people watch it later because it's on Facebook Live, but there's something essential about these eight people that show up. I know they're always there and I, and I'd be sad. Um, I mean, just not, I mean, I don't know. There's something about them that are very significant to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, that's my community right now. And I don't know. I mean, Daya, I kind of connect with you. I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't long for right now the litur- certain liturgies that um, are certain rituals. I mean, I do. In the, I mean, that's kind of what brought me to the Episcopal Church, particularly is the Eucharist. But, but right now, I think, and even this is kind of connected to my whole scheme of even why we did this this topic is because of how I see it as I see it early early Jews, like in the first century, are having to, in the second century, really adapt to the temple not being there. And then they're having to figure out what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to worship as a Jew without this kind of centralized temple? And, you know, I mean, in a sense, there is a little bit of that going on with us in the sense of we are trying to figure out how to worship and be a community without kind of that centralized location. And, and for me, it's been really prayer has been the thing that has kind of kept us all together. And I, so for me, Mary, I don't know. I mean, prayer, what does, how does that mean? When I say all that, do you relate to that? Do you connect with that? Do you just, what does prayer mean for you as, as a rabbi, as, as a, as a um, as a Jew, like what does that mean for you? Oh, that's a huge question. Um, yeah. Interesting. I, you know, I struggle because I think there's this interesting difference. And I, 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 that's why I brought up the Muslim example in the beginning. Is that there's this element of Hebrew, and that many Jews who even have basic Jewish education can uh, decode or read Hebrew, but they can't understand it. So the majority of Jews, even if they can read it, cannot interpret it. And so there's this sort of um, incantation-like element to it all. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that most Jews, if you said, well, what is prayer? They would think of the central worship prayer that we have, which is Shema, um, of just hero Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is your God. You know, that just one line. Mm -hmm. And, um, And they would say it in Hebrew, and you learn it really young. And so when I think about prayer, a special communal Jewish prayer, it always seems to have an element of this other language in it, which makes it really hard to um, be flexible, in special, specifically, I think, in an online context. So you can't sort of jump to it and be like, okay, well, they can't see the words, but um, they can just receive it. And if you want people to join and participate with it, you have to have a wide way of doing it visually and connecting with them. And so for me... Um, that's been an interesting tension to think about what does worship look like that is frees us from this book that we're pretty connected to that not as the Torah book, but like in our, as our prayer book. 
And I would think that in other places, the hymnal might have some of that, um, that you want it to be, you know, a chorus of people from the community raising their voices together in some kind of prayer in that communal context. But it's really hard to, like, fake it when you're doing it in Hebrew. And so, or in any other language that isn't your native language. And so um, it's allowed me to be creative in those places to pick which ones I want to do that with and then what is the visual component of that. And can prayer also be this... um, visual art practice too like can we receive the images that we're putting up there can there be a thing that you're moving in ways that wouldn't happen in other other ways um and then i i find something that i sort of learned from my christian brothers and sisters a lot better than the jewish context like you um you wouldn't really you you say a healing prayer for people in judaism and it is a sort of rote prayer or, or a written down prayer but that sort of prayer from the heart thing that so many i i Thing is the wrong word, but you know what I'm talking about, that Christians yeah. say, I'm going to pray for you, and then they might just be able to say something right from their heart. Like, Jews just don't do that. They're like, let me turn to page 44 and <laughs> recite what's on this, and there's a formula for everything we do, and it's really nice and ordered that way, and depending which food item you're eating at what time, it has an accompanying formula, and to say right now those formulas um, are not serving us or we don't have enough of them, and I, again, I go back to sort of the feminist um, movement in Judaism happening in the 70s where they said, well, where's the ritual? There's a ritual for bris or for the ritual circumcision, but there's not something for a woman's first period or for a mastectomy or for, you know, whatever you're going to have that are connected to our bodies and our experience. I feel like we're um, we're entering this mode where our formulas only are serving us to a certain point. And so what is the the new way of doing this? And since we're in such a, a smaller world than we ever were before, can we learn? Um, can we learn from people like you all? I think to um, set some of the formula aside and embrace uh, embrace some of the things from the heart. And I know that Episcopalians is probably the wrong wrong group of people. More like us, like no, no. This is what you, I know. I know it's much more organized, like the other uh, Christian faith traditions, but. I do think there's something in this moment that's asking us to mm-hmm. figure out a different way to connect to um, the divine, to God, to the interconnectedness of all people. And I think that um, for me, I, I struggle with that prayer book being being the way to go to it, whereas before it's um, it was so natural. You, just, you always know what to do if you could just open to page two and rise, you know? Yeah. Marianne, can I ask a question? Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I am wondering how Jewish diaspora over the centuries and that need to preserve identity affects how you think about making changes now. Because it seems to me that when you're a religious minority in a place that is plausibly hostile, Identity has a really different meaning and preserving ritual is very different than it is when you're a majority religion. So can you help us think about how you see that? Sure. No, that's a really good question. Um, And I'll just preface this by saying that I'm the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. He was a concentration camp survivor and it was a narrative that I learned really young. I mean, most Jewish children learn that story very young. Um, we all go through a phase where we just, like, read a lot of books, and usually it's 
you, you know, there's like an age you get told about the Holocaust. And mm. um, in my generation and older, you learned it from someone in your life. And so I think that's going to be a huge difference going forward. But um, so I'll, I'll just say that in the context of that and um, of that story and also being a child of immigrants, that I'm also that in this world. So I think that, that this question is really uh, relevant for me as an individual, not just communal. Um, and, I, and I think that when we were little, we would be taught things with this notion of um, everything is, like uh, Soloveitchik would talk about this, like you have to talk always with the fires of Auschwitz in your mind, that, that you're always in the shadow of that. So anything you're choosing to do has to be that. So most right now, I know if you have COVID and you're positive um, and you die, they want you to be cremated because it's better for the groundwater and it'll be better for the world. Like they want you to be doing that. And that's really hard now for Jews to think about cremation when they wouldn't necessarily have, you know, it would feel like antithetical to do that. And how could you do that when so many Jews were cremated in gas chambers? How could you think about mm. cremation? How could you imagine that you wouldn't be resurrected then? And, you know, all these things. And yet, like, we should probably be doing that right now. Um, I think that um, part of the problem of Jewish identity is that we're being sold this theology and also ritual practice always in light of our pain and our struggles. If you do this, then your grandfather's going to roll in his grave. Or if you do this, then what was the, you know, how could you eat non-kosher food when even in Dachau, like on Passover, they would go hungry instead of eating, you know, the unkosher food, those kinds of things. Um, and I just don't think that, um, well, I guess I feel that that guilt, like pre preservation of faith through the lens of guilt only has so much power. And at some point it starts to break down. And I think that that same issue happens with like lying to our children, like telling them we have the only one answer and this is only one way of being at some point, one piece of that string starts to come undone and then you question the whole package. And so I, th I think the power of the moment, um, sort of I think if you think about the age of the fall of the temple, that it, di it didn't just fall down and all of a sudden, poof, there were synagogues. They were had to be making small changes all the way through. At some point, they didn't want to make the walk all the way up there. At some point, they were making small sacrifices. At some point they stopped imagining that God was only in one space and that it could be possible for them too. And so when it fell down, there was a network of people who had built the beginnings of the next age. And I, I do think that we're in that cusp culture right now. And I say that without pain. Like I, I think that, um, you know, something that me personally in my community went through five years ago, we sold a very large building and we decided that we weren't going to invest in infrastructure and we would spend it on, uh, expanding our online presence and increasing um, and changing our financial structure so that it didn't so deeply depend on our constituents providing money and that would expand our inclusivity and our economic base and things like that. And look, it set us up for this world. I didn't have to teach a single person how to use electronics during this period, right, in that kind of way um, because we saw that. And on the same hand, um, we knocked up, the building was demolished and it knocked down 65 years of weddings and bar mitzvahs and stories that was held in those walls. And so it's not that those things weren't real and that it wasn't that the loss wasn't painful, but it, it was necessary for us. Um, I do think that there's some things that I'm willing to do that don't feel like they're costing um, anything of my ancestors or, you know, disturbing anything my ancestors would do. 
And I imagine that when my grandfather was born in a small town in Germany outside of Frankfurt, that if you told him when he was 15 years old in an Orthodox synagogue that he would someday have a granddaughter, a blonde, green-eyed granddaughter who would be a rabbi in the middle of Midwest United States, he'd be like, that's not my Judaism. What the hell are you talking about? Um, but eventually, you know, he when at 92, he did know that, and that was a beautiful thing. And so I have to think of that the Judaism that I'm forming now is something I cannot even imagine that my grandchild will experience or will live into, but the essence of my traditions, at least the cultural elements, will be there. And hopefully the core elements of the theology will be carried forth, and it won't just be based on um, people trying to kill us. It'll also be based on the beautiful things that we'll be able to preserve over 5,000 years. Wow, that's so that's so yeah. beautiful and hopeful. I mean, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, well, what has been being built alongside um, that is now ready in this moment? I, I, I can't think of anything that uh, runs parallel to your synagogue and the choices you've made, but it's really a powerful thing to hear. I was thinking about the quote that I have on my business card, which is a quote from Peter Morin, who helped with Dorothy Day, found the Catholic worker movement, but it says the future will be different if we make the present different. And I think for me that like what you're describing, which is so like brought tears to my eyes, the thought of it's really about emergence. It's about how we open ourselves to a future that's beyond our very imaginations. Um, and yet, yeah, like how do we do that faithfully and in each moment asking ourselves what is the, the core that we want to pass on and, and what are we willing to let go of for the sake of future generations and um, future witness of our faith? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if any of you are visual artists. I'm, I'm a painter and um, I feel like there's this creative process moment where you're creating what you imagined you were creating. And then, um, I don't know, something dries funny or your kid knocks something over or your cat jumps on it or I don't know, <laughs> something happens. Uh, or you just like suck at it and you overwork it and it turns into total crap. And you're like, this is the crap moment. Like, it's all crap. I spent money on this thing. What do I do with it? And um, when I was younger and uh, less patient, I would just throw it away and start again. And I throw it away and start again. And um, Or I'd repaint it. I would wash it back over. And... Um, I don't do that anymore. Like I have more patience with um, the crap stage and um, it doesn't always turn out good at all. <laughs> or something I want to hang on a wall or give away and like maybe eventually it lands up in the garbage, but it does have patience with the messy moment and the ugly moment and um, trust that maybe your hand knows better and maybe it really did need to be all reds and that's okay too. And I, I sort of feel like we're in this really messy moment and maybe and we're being asked to have so much more compassion and patience for um, the things that we thought we could count on that we can't anymore. And so maybe we're just in the messy stage of the painting and um, we probably won't see the end result. Like that's not our, our job is to live in the cusp and live in the mess. And then hopefully, hopefully it'll start be something that is worth passing on or worth inheriting later on. Yeah, I am a painter, and I'm looking right now at a painting on my easel, which is exactly that that messy <laughs> moment. But the thing I really love is that um, I know if I put this away and then forget about it, like 
a year later I will find it and I'll be like, Oh, I, I see what's good in the thing. You know, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. always like the, the critical mind of the present moment is too overbearing. It needs to be, it needs to just allow things to be what they are in the moment and not try and control them, which is not mm-hmm. easy to do. Um, okay. You all, we're yeah. on 54 minutes and we haven't hit the article yet. So I think oh, we yeah. probably need to move to that. Yeah. I mean, we can just do a, one, one question or one concept from it. <clears throat> How about that? Okay. Sure. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm editing. I can always get it down to an hour by taking out all of my completely unnecessary comments from before. <laughs> no. <Ooh. laughs> well, Are people reading this article? Is that what's going on? So we're just going to, we were going to, I mean, so our format tends to be where we discuss the article in, in not in like complete depth, but just a little bit. Depending on kind of how the conversation goes, so it's not it's not necessary to do it. But we have a few minutes left, so so going to the article. I mean, we I did give out this article that it's called um, it, it's an article that I'm using in my dissertation, and it's it's on rabbinic sacred space, and it's really looking at the development of the perceptions of of space. So I mean, like Jews when there's a temple, when there was a temple in Jerusalem. Um, there was this perception that this is where, you know, you, you encounter God. Um, but I, I think it was more expansive than that. I, I, I think that there was, God was, I mean, they knew that God wasn't just in one place. I mean, you can even clearly get that from, from scripture. I mean, from the Psalms and things like that, that God was much more expansive. But I think once that temple gets destroyed, there has to be kind of this new, you know, adaptation for how does our worship and how does our, gathering reflect that more expansive view i mean there was something in the article that i thought because we have limited time i'll just just kind of focus on that but i wrote down the other day and it was this statement of he talks about the author talks about the non-exclusive presence of god and that Mm -hmm. god isn't kind of focused on one place but that in in synagogue worship and home worship this you know this idea even this like Hebrew word, like um, Shekinah or however you pronounce it, um, it's kind of this more the intimacy of God. And that even kind of goes back to what you were referring, Miriam, back to the minion, the, the minion and, and, and even how it got down to even God is present even in kind of like one. I mean, and even as Christians, we always quote the idea that Christ is present when two or three are gathered together. And but so. I want to focus on that idea of non-exclusive presence and even go back to even maybe even when I was talking about at the beginning, when I was talking about how inclusive I feel like, um, or how included I felt in going to uh, Shabbat services. But I, and then, and then to looking at even kind of even playing off the idea that of how we're progressing as religious communities, especially when it comes to the inclusion of like women in leadership and the LBGTQ community and, I mean, I, there's something about the idea of the not, there's something about the non-exclusive presence of God um, that I, I really just connected with. And so the question that maybe I just present to you guys is just the idea of like, how, like how it has the Episcopal like church and the Reformed tradition and Judaism made that non-exclusive presence of God um, more inclusive? Um, I don't know, I just, you guys have thoughts about that or... Well, I, so I have a little story to tell. Um, a few years ago, when I was a chaplain at Kenyon, 
there were incoming first year students who were in an honors program and the professor designed a scavenger hunt for them. And one of the questions on the scavenger hunt was, it was something like, uh, you know, what is a religious building that is also a school or something like that? And they were supposed to find the name for this. And I, I, I overheard them. I was just in the library reading and I overheard these two students going through this. And I was like, oh, I know the answer to that. It's synagogue, right? A, a religious building that's also a school is a synagogue. And then later that night, I ran into the professor who had written the scavenger hunt um, at a bar. And I was like, oh, that was such a great scavenger hunt. I heard the students doing this. It was amazing. And I really liked that question about the synagogue. And he said, what question about the synagogue? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you know, the religious sacred space that's also a school. And he was like, the, the answer to that was ecclesia, not synagogue. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. You mean like church? means a sacred place that is also a school just like synagogue does and you know i i just never realized that i had never conceptualized that the place where i went and led uh you know throughout the week should also be a school should also be a, a place of deep formation and it, I, I raise it now in part because i think that's one in answer to your question jason i think that's one way that yeah. we kind of de uh, hierarchalize or however you want to say it to create a word um that space is to say this is a place for learning for students to gather together and learn and in a certain way it doesn't matter who the teacher is the teacher is the person who has the most to teach um but the other is that it actually now i'm thinking about it kind of provides an answer to that question you were raising miriam like what has come alongside that can now be stepping into the fore and i think Probably churches that have taken that formation part the most seriously are doing the best right now because mm -hmm. they have multiple ways in which people are used to gathering mm -hmm. rather than just in worship. I mean, I, I, I like I can speak for ourselves. I think that in something that I'm trying to do is one, our financial structure in the synagogue world is no longer something that meets our economic needs or our, I think, faith needs. I think that the way that we budget and how that sort of permeates the whole process and sort of keeps this a really um, system of economic scarcity going is really problematic. And so that's something that personally I've tried to work in the communal context. Um, and I don't think that the synagogue as, uh, as it exists now is something that will exist, you know, beyond a generation or two, mostly because of that financial um, structure, and then I also think that the prayer book that we will stop um, sort of just doing new versions and making them right now. Like the big thing that we changed ten years ago was that we put transliteration in, so that even if you can't read Hebrew, you could sing along. Mm -hmm. And um, I imagine that with an increased culture, and I think you know, even when I was a kid, if you married a non-Jew, there was something that was. Um, Something you had to sort of apologize for or hide, and when the non-Jewish partner would come into the synagogue or with their kids, or whatever, that um, they sort of had to like act as if they were Jewish and or, abs or absorb all the cultural things, and it was understood that you would raise the children Jewish because how dare you, you know that kind of thing. And um, I imagine that now that um, it's like oh, it's it's not a bad thing to marry a Jew. I think also that back then you know, it was coming from the other side too. Like, how could you marry a Jew? They're X, Y, and Z. I think that a lot of those stereotypes um, 
have been changed thanks to Seinfeld and um, other things. Like now our stereotypes are like the cool dork and there's still money and smart. Like those are good stereotypes to have. Like, I mean, they're still stereotypical, but that I think it's, it's less, it's, it's, it's not as um, negative to marry outside the faith. Whereas, you know, in my lifetime that has changed that I imagine that prayer and liturgy are beginning to change right now for that to become accessible. But I think that there'll be a moment, um, well, well, that will just completely explode, and there'll be a whole new versions of how to be culturally Jewish with um, ecumenical prayer and things like that. I also think that this moment in the pandemic, there's going to be a new religion born of all of this. That it that people wow. do need faith, but um, if we're not able to be flexible and really think about our core self, that that um, not that we will die, and that I think that there'll still be room for us, but I think that some some other kind of entity will come in and fill that space. And so um, to sort of work in that third place religiously is, is interesting and I think the, uh, essential for our future. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, there's something about how how we adapt and how we allow this time to... Um, shape the way we adapt and, and how we embrace it. Um, there is something about what is it going to, how is it going to affect our future and, and how are we going, how are we going to be able to serve, you know, people in the, in whatever the future looks like. I, I don't know. So yeah, I totally connect with that. All right. Well, so, I think we're, I'll oh, go ahead. I just want to say one of the thoughts that I had kind of coming into this and maybe it connects now is one of the questions I've been carrying for a while is kind of using the metaphors of our Jewish ancestors in the ways in which they would gather. And that for so long, I think one of your earlier questions was about whether the Episcopal church or whether churches lean more into temple worship or synagogue worship. And I think clearly there's, this temple worship aspect to the way in which we gather and have ritualized prayers and um, the way that the gathering functions. And yet I, I think that it's been this sort of false idol for us on some level that like we have to have this perfect liturgy in order for us to accomplish God's purposes in this world. And there is a part of me that wonders if we haven't thought enough about what does synagogue worship look like? What does the local context and community call for in this moment? What's the nature of how we gather um, and how does it define who we are and who we will be? And that there may be times for us to imagine being on the move and carrying with us the sacred objects and sacred stories of the past, but that we have to leave behind something and I don't know, I, I guess one of my hopes of, is coming out of this, how could we imagine not just the including of more people, and I love the idea of some sort of interfaith way yeah. of praying together and seeking the Holy One in, in our midst and all of those things. And how do we also say, what does, what does the local community call for in this moment? What is the need? And not just how do we continue to perform these sacred actions just because this is what we've always known how to do. Great conversation. I, I just want to thank you, Miriam, for, for joining this, um, for uh, kind of exploring this idea, this concept, and really giving us some insight 
Um, not only, I mean, really, I think this conversation kind of went somewhere that I wasn't expecting it to, and I'm really thankful about that. Um, and what I'm taking away from it is really just that we all are really, we have a shared sense of longing for um, redefining and adapting and, and, and really being more um, inclusive and effective in, in what we're doing as a, um, as a people, as a faith tradition. And, and so um, I want to thank you again for joining us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Lawning. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. Our special guest today was Rabbi Miriam. We'll be back next week when our topic is functioning as a spiritual leader in your own home. We'll see you then. Oh. Uh-huh.